0: Well, let's begin with a Jeopardy music for 100. (laughs) The famous song was number one for two weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and won Grammy awards for song of the year, record of the year and best male pop vocal performance and was also named the worst song of all time by Village Voice. Topped the Q100 list of tracks that would forever be banned from radio and was listed in the 50 worst songs ever, where Blender said that it's difficult to think of a song more likely to plunge you into suicidal despondency (laughs) than this, and also lambasted his appalling lyrics. Okay, the music for Jeopardy is playing. (laughs) Who has the answer? Don't worry, be happy. What's that? Don't worry, be happy. That's right. (laughs) Look for you for 100 bucks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, it was 100 points, not 100 bucks, sorry. <laughs> Excellent. I knew somebody would probably get it out of this group. But um, anyway, this song was released in 1988 by Bobby McFerrin. It was the first a cappella song to reach number one in the Billboard 100. Now, how many have, have heard the song? How many have not? Anybody? All right, great. All right, I have abbreviated the song so we don't get all the repetition and the whistling, and I won't whistle for you, okay? But here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. In every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry. Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry. The landlord say your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry. Ain't got no cash, ain't got no style, ain't got no gal to make you smile, don't worry. Because when you worry, your face will frown, and that will bring everybody down, don't worry. Now there is this song I wrote, I hope you learned it it note for note, like good little children, don't worry, be happy. Now listen to what I said, in your life, expect some trouble, don't worry, Uh, but when you worry, you make it double, don't worry. Be happy. Okay? Now, regardless of the song's controversy, McFerrin, the son of music professionals, is arguably a gifted musician and vocalist and did an amazing job in vocalizing and recording this now famous song. Um, and if I were to dare to sing, you would catch the, the, the melody right away, but I won't try that. I won't burden you with that. <clears throat> Yet, oddly enough, the song's cycle of success and reproach seems to echo. Solomon's conclusion of all things that all is vanity, from being voted the best in the world to being voted the last in the world, is like chasing after wind. By way of remembrance, while the word vanity in Ecclesiastes can be translated meaninglessness, it would be best to understand it in the sense that something has no perceived lasting value, like it cannot be grasped, as in trying to catch the breath or the wind, grabbing hold of it leaves nothing in your hand, Yet even the lack of lasting value in our domain can still have purpose in a larger context, as we're going to see from today's lesson. Our perspective of what is lasting or has purpose is limited because we don't have all of God's bigger picture. In the first part of chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, everyday things in life can appear to be an endless loop of activities that eventually have a net zero impact. But should we entirely write off the lyrics of this song? is there perhaps a line of truth that reflects real truth my intention here is not to ascribe to the song some sort of divinely inspired status but that we would remember what Jesus taught in Matthew 6:25 through 34 where he said worry can't add anything to your life Matthew 10:19 don't worry about what to say when you defend yourself for the gospel McFerrin's song doesn't give the basis for not worrying. It leaves the listener to assume that blocking out negative things in life is a matter of being indifferent to or denial of reality, which is to live a lie. Thus, it's being voted the worst of all songs because it really didn't give a proper context. If we are to apply all of the Lord's exhortations to not worry, we must make sure that we have biblical view, not a secular view of why this is true. His exhortations were in the context uh, of trusting God for life's everyday needs when he said, you can't add anything to your life, and including the persecution of our faith when he said, don't worry about what you're going to say. There's some context there that gives us a basis for why we should not worry. There's something bigger than ourselves at work. The inspired word through Solomon exhorts us today to rejoice or be happy in our labors even though life is full of vanity. But only with this context of the works and plans of God can we safely choose to not worry. He's not negating everything he's already said or what he's about to say that life is full of vanity. It is if we focus on ourselves and the things around us. Where it does not have vanity is in when we understand the context that God has surrounding our lives and his scripture. Michael Leaton says, The preacher's survey is no longer limited to being under the sun. The working of God is now brought into consideration. In Ecclesiastes 3, 12 through 13, we're going to read, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. And in verse 22, he adds, I have seen that nothing is better than that a man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot, for who will bring him to see what will occur after him. It's also echoed in several other places in Ecclesiastes. So Solomon, the preacher, is saying, don't worry, be happy, but from a biblical context, which he provides in this chapter so so far in the study of ecclesiastes uh... Solomon the preacher has pretty much knocked the wind out of finding any lasting meaning in the purpose of life hasn't he? chapter one was the pursuit of wisdom is vanity chapter two he began with the pursuit of pleasure and possessions is vanity he continued with the pursuit of finding meaning in one's labor is vanity and on the surface sounds much like it was just not worth anything. Why bother, right? But in chapter 3, we see that he seeks to prevent our falling completely into a despondent, catatonic state of depression. The proposition in this chapter is, chapter is that while God has set eternity in man's heart, mankind also knows that life will end without seeing any lasting fruit of his labor. Yet, as believers, we can be at peace and rejoice that God has everything progressed ultimate lasting purposes in spite of our limited understanding and how our short lives play a part in his big picture. Our theme today is um, believers are to rejoice in their labors of life even though their labors seem to be in vain by embracing five contexts of God's eternal purposes. Our passage today has two sections. Verse 1 through 15 will provide us these five crucial contexts for rejoicing amidst life vanities. And the last verses, 16 through 22, will provide a practical example of the vanity of human justice and how to respond by applying these five principles. Read with me, follow along with me as I read Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from which, that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also set eternity in their hearts, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take away from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. That which has been already And that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed. So what follows in these first few verses are 14 pairs of opposites or cycles that end up right back where they began, like running life on a hamster wheel going nowhere in particular. Perhaps you feel like that sometimes. You keep trying and things just don't come together. These convey a sense of apparent despair in every ever seeing a net positive purpose to life's labors, which further elucidates the preacher's lament. Now, the use of the pairs in contrast like this is common in the Old Testament. It's an emphatic way to show everywhere or all-inclusive or to show the full circle of something or the totality of something. And several of these pairs are sequential to another pair with a similar meaning, which also forms another form of emphasis in Hebrew poetry. Now in verse 1 we read, there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven. The key point of this verse is that these times are appointed. Did you ever think of the good and the bad both being appointed in your lifetime? Well, they are. And uh, the word appointed time here means to set a time with an indefinite unit. It's not determined. In other words, these are generalities in the sense that they could happen at any time Uh, There's just a bunch of them. We may not know when, but we can most likely expect that such an event will occur in our own lifetime. The word, a time for every event, in the King James, you might read the word, there's a time for every purpose, okay, pinpoints what one wants to do. And an event is any desire or thing that one can point to is happening. So again, we're speaking in high-level generalities here. There's a time that these things are all appointed. Verse 11 also adds that each time an event has an appropriate time, which is more like the word purpose. Solomon is showing us that there is a larger giver of purpose than the person in the event, which we'll revisit in a moment. He begins to list his pairs and examples here with verse 2, beginning with the most encompassing event in anyone's life, and that is a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot Is this cutting out on us? Okay. All right, verse 2. The focus here is all of life. The full cycle of time within which someone can labor or see the fruit from their labor. This event that has a start and a finish and, as we all already know, the net result is back where it began and it has a net effect of zero. Later in verse 20, Solomon uses the expression, All came from the dust, and all returned to the dust. And Hebrews 9.27 reminds us that it is appointed. There's our word again, but now in in Greek. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this comes judgment. As birth is appointed, so is death. All die. Such is the vanity of life, right? If we are focusing on our own temporal means the word to plant has the same sense or has a sense of permanence and stability while uproot is to destroy or to abandon a mirror thought of being born and dying this is obviously in the common to the farming trade right to reap what has been planted so that it can be used for food well, then we consume the food but then the pattern also applies to other things such as running a business or establishing kings and nations You may recall from daniel chapter 2 21 through 22 it is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. God is in charge of everything that is going on, and that's what Solomon is trying to paint the picture of for us here. The sense of a no net gain is throughout Ecclesiastes and is the source of Solomon's lament. All is vanity. The next three pairs deal with creative and destructive human activities. Verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. Now, to kill is usually by intention in the meaning of the word here. Animals are killed for food, criminals are executed, war takes lives, and to heal is to restore, most commonly in regards to health, but it can also mean not only the he- healing of wounds, but relationships can be healed. And, but the word is also used to express making something non-toxic like tainted water like in 2 Kings 2.22 where Elisha healed the water by throwing salt into it. There is a pain and there is a pleasure. Life is mixed with both. A time to tear down and a time to build up, Solomon says. To tear down, again, is to destroy by using impact. It's to be hostile. We can relate to such things as tearing down old buildings, dissolving old partnerships, or, again, war, destroying things. To build up is to restore to a prior state, or to make to prosper. This idea includes new things are constructed, new relationships are formed, and there's an, a time to encourage someone and build them up, as we read in the New Testament as well. The next two pairs deal with human emotions. Verse four: a time to weep, and a time to laugh. Now we weep over temporal loss, we of uh, like such as loved ones or broken relationships. We uh, weep over lost opportunities. But most importantly, there's a time when we are to weep over our sin. You may recall from Matthew 5.11, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the context there is that we mourn over our sin. There's a time for that. And by God's grace, then, we can rejoice afterwards. The last part of verse 4 says there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. And Proverbs reminds us that a merry heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Good laughter is largely the sudden jolt of expectations being redirected, the pun or the wit of something in a moment, right? The odd analogy that we hadn't thought of before, something that catches us off guard. Good laughter can help us be joyful There's a time for that, but there's not a time for laughing at others. We are to, Ephesians 4, 29 tells us, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, Dancing is lightly referenced in Scripture where it has two primary forms. It's not an exhaustive documentary on dancing, but... The two primary forms we see in Scripture is that it was used as a celebration to the Lord and it was a form of praise and that which is seductive as Herod asking someone to dance in front of him, right? So in our present context here, dance is seen as a time of delight and joy in contrast to the weeping and mourning. The next two pairs deal with the friendship and enmity in daily life, verse 5 a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. There are various interpretations of what this throwing stones is all about. Most are without any strong merit simply because they don't tie to the next parallel string, which is the time to embrace and time to shun embracing. As uh, many expositors would say that there's a purpose for that here. Perhaps one of the best ideas is that of a military conquest that leads eventually to embracing your enemy once peace is achieved. But until that treaty is reached, embracing is shunned. And until that end of that war, that that, uh, conflict, there will still be stones being thrown at one another. This can also apply to personal relationships and situations where discipline is being administered. Shunning the embrace can be an instrument of consequences if done properly and in the right timing perhaps to a child. The next two reflect on possessions and and our res- resolutions concerning them. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Um, there we go. To search here is to try to learn information about an object implying a diligence in the procurement of the information. There's a digging, a, a, a searching In some contexts it can also mean to hold responsible, to call to account, hold accountable to a certain standard, often when sanctions for the not meeting the standard. There's a time for digging into a matter, but at some point it becomes time wasted or an effort that will not return anything useful. To keep versus to throw away, Solomon here is speaking of those of us who still have a garage full of stuff from raising kids. Anybody relate to that? <laughs> okay. Now that the kids are out of the house, I feel that my interest and my, my time is going to other things, and I don't have time for everything I've stored up. And so moth and rust are destroying it. I don't have time for those old hobbies anymore. Um, I'm, I'm trying to adopt the attitude that give it away, give it to somebody else who can use it, uh, rather than holding on to stuff that is, quote, still useful, and therefore I don't want to get rid of it. And woe to me when I try to address letting go of things which are sentimental. It's like if I discard something sentimental, then I'll forget it ever happened. Or that uh, maybe God will forget it ever happened. (laughs) Maybe that would be a good thing. I don't know. Um, This, too, is vanity and chasing after the wind. And I have to remind myself, when I'm gone, I'm not going to care, right? Um, So I'm working at uh, giving things away and not holding garage sales. (laughs) Verse 7, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together. I'm certain Solomon had recycling in mind here, right? Um, Tearing apart that old deck that has rotted away to put in another one, or tearing down an old railroad tie retaining wall, which I know Steve has done and I've done. And (laughs) there's a a time for that. Uh, You need to move on. Things rot. Things get old. There's also a time to be silent and a time to speak. We're reminded uh, by Solomon in in Proverbs 21, He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from many troubles. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. There's a time to be silent, to hold our speech. But there are also many exhortations of Scripture that say there are times we should speak up. Proverbs 31 says, verse 8, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Ephesians 5.11 says, Do not participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. 1 Peter 3.15-16 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So there's a time to be silent and a time to speak up. There's also in verse 8 a time to love and a time to hate. While I believe most of us can fully understand the place of love in life, right, it would be fair, however, to ask, when does Scripture say that it's right to hate something? Love is spoken about much more often than Scripture, thousands of references, and we read that in the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And in John 1, 4, verse 7 and following, it's nearly a whole chapter on the priority of loving one another. And Jesus made the point in John 13, 35, you will know that people are my disciples by their love for one another. But to get a correct understanding of hate in Scripture, we need to make sure we understand the Hebrew concept of hate. Yes, it can mean angry feelings toward one another, but it can also simply mean second place. The Hebrew language does not have superlatives like greater or lesser, and so they show that by using the word hate to mean lesser than something else. For example, Jesus even used this idea in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children or brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not asking us to have an anger or a bitterness or a resentment towards our parents. This commandment still stands, you're to love your mother and father so that your days be long upon the earth, right? And in John 12:25, he who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Again, I hope we we find that pretty clear. That is just the way the Hebrew language works. And so as we look at this, we need to discern, is it talking about really hating something or is it really talking about a position of priorities? So this can also be a pretty big issue for people that are coming out of non-Christian religions especially. They will be hated by their family for dissenting from their religious norms and stuff uh, it's a difficult thing to for someone to come out of that kind of an environment it can even be so-called quasi-christian uh, groups like Muslim excuse me like Mormons and and uh, other cults that we have in our country Solomon is saying there is a time to hate he's saying that there's a time for something to be second he's also saying there's a time for actually hating something so turning to other scripture references we find that We are to hate several things. For example, in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There is something there that might be a righteous purpose for being angry. But do not sin in the process. Elsewhere we read in Hebrews 1.9, you have loved righteousness and you have hated lawlessness. There we're not saying that lawlessness just needs to be secondary. We're saying we should really hate it. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Revelations 2.6, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Psalm 97.10, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Romans 12.9, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Proverbs 6.16-19, you've heard this one. There are six things which the Lord hates, yea, seven which are an abomination to him. Uh, abomination is hardly second place to something, right? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run e- rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife amongst brethren. Proverbs 8:13 The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Psalm 119104. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every evil or false way. Yet, in the balance of all this, we're to remember from Matthew 5:43 through 48, the idea that we are to love our enemies and those who persecute us. Context, context, context. Yeah. Did you have a question, Brian? No. Mm -hmm. absolutely we can still pray for our leaders we can still um, wish that and pray that the the gospel is spread that they repent but we can hate the deed right it's not the person a time for war and a time for peace as Solomon goes on war is appointed by God for the punishment of evil in this temporal world we can read that in Romans chapter 2 Uh, Declaring war is something that's determined at the national level through the God-appointed leaders. He's in total control of what that is. It's not something that individuals are to take up on their own. Ezekiel 14 has an instance of God declaring it, uh, declaring war uh, so that he can bring the sword. Now, peace is a demonstration of God's own mercy and patience, and so there's a time for that as well. Verse 9, he goes on, What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils?" Now this is a leading question, okay? Solomon knows the answer and he wants to tell you the answer so he's baiting you in your thought. The question here is that there is no profit if we look to ourselves, but there is a profit if we look to the bigger whole. Solomon's question brings us back to the end of chapter two that it seems a waste that whatever we do to produce or accomplish in life is simply passed on to others. You remember when uh, Joshua spoke to us last time about that. And from these first eight verses of chapter 3, our efforts produce uh, what seem to be locked in a cycle of a no net gain. But this is where Solomon begins to put a damper on the spiral of despair and turns us upward in our perspective. In verse 10, he says, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate, meaning purposeful in its time. Solomon declares that these cycles of tasks we can find endless, repetitive, and of no net gain are, in fact, tasks from God that have come to us at an appropriate time. Right, so as we, we're going to see from the context here, we don't understand why we go through trials at the moment necessarily. Sometimes it's to exhibit Christ through us to somebody else. Sometimes it's for our own discipline. There's many different reasons that the negative can come but we are to see that everything is in an appropriate time. The words, I have seen, means to look with perception and insight into the object and to make judgments based on those perceptions. The word occupy means to be afflicted with, disturbed or oppressed, to be in a state of feeling of anxiety and distress. These are very negative weight words that come into something that Solomon is trying to tell us is coming from God, right? Um, Saying that he has given us these tasks to occupy ourselves, to burden us. So what's he trying to say here? While still acknowledging his prior perspectives of the weariness and the vain toils in life, Solomon shares that he has dug deep into thought about this, and at some point he probably read Genesis 2.15, where he found that man was purposely put to work by God for God's purposes in the garden. Man was designed to have work and to enjoy it. Verse 11 continues, He has also set eternity in their hearts, so, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Now set eternity here means to be made of a certain state to last a long time. It isn't some fleeting idea that God has put in man's heart. He's put it on everybody's heart that there is an eternity. Some squander that or suppress that in unrighteousness, as Romans 1 talks to us. But the point here, God has designed us, has created us with the idea that there is an eternity and that we are accountable to it. Yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. He's saying that you can't see all of this, right? Does does this sound kind of (laughs) cruel? It's like teasing a child with a cookie and saying you can't have the cookie. Do you ever do that? Never. (laughs) How about the dog? (laughs) Uh, This this sounds cruel, right? We have this idea of eternity, this idea of infinity. We have All this, but can we explain? Let's just take the analogy back to kids. When you have a two-year-old in the house, do you explain to them how to drive? Do you explain to them? You might give them a little car and they can start to learn, but do they really understand traffic laws and the consequences and automobile insurance and liability and just what speed does and how not turning on your signal or what (laughs) you making a wrong turn can do to people? Yeah, Brian? So the child has no capacity to understand those big ideas. This is the reminder to us, nor do we. In God's big picture, we do not not have the ability to comprehend the magnificence of what He is doing. And so He has hidden that from us, but He has planted this wonderful seed called the idea of eternity. It's to do one of two things. It's basically going to lead us to repentance because we realize we are unworthy or it's going to convict us that we are about to face a judgment. And God uses those things. We are just incapable of doing it. We are children before God. I think I've missed... There we go. <clears throat> I just had a comment up here earlier about how you you put your notes, you put in gray so that you can skip over it if you don't run out of time, or if you're running out of time. I printed mine in black and white this morning. (laughs) So I hope to still get done in time here. I think we're going to make it. And I don't know when I'm supposed to change my slides. So anyway, bear with me. Uh, Yet learning about him is our daily duty. We have this idea of eternity in our hearts, and we are have a duty to continue to learn about him, but we will never until he comes again and gives us new bodies will we ever comprehend the magnificence, the magnitude of what he is doing. It says in John 17, 3, to know thee is eternal life. That doesn't mean we know everything about God, but we know that he has sent a redeemer because we have sin that keeps us from being restored in relationship with him. Paul also reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. Can you imagine? No, we really can't, can we? We only understand ourselves, and we won't really appreciate the fullness of that statement until we are fully in heaven. The full revelation of God to man will only occur after our salvation, our physical salvation has been complete and only when God says it's time. What a tremendous gift to even be aware of eternity. On the one hand, we are fearful of judgment, which can lead us to repent. On the other hand, we have so much to look forward that will keep our vocus off of the vanity of this world and unto the next. But it's also a frustration because our flesh tells us that we want everything we can imagine. In our flesh, we want it now, we want it our way, and we want it in our timing. Yet God also keeps secrets. It's important to remember. Gradually in his appointed time, he has made known more of what is ahead. In Romans 16, 25, Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and preaching of Christ Jesus, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now has been manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of the faith." We are on a timeline, and we have the privilege of seeing a lot of this mystery revealed in the working of Christ because Christ has already come. Solomon tells us we need to embrace the context that God has ordained that we do not see everything. The third biblical context that Solomon identifies we should embrace so that we can rejoice in this world of vanity, is that God created and gifted mankind to work for his purposes. I've already read 12 and 13, but I'll read it again. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Should we be complaining about the gift of God, right? No. As I mentioned in Genesis 2.15, we were created for this work, and Paul echoes the same in Ephesians 2:10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. Now, I find it very comforting that we are exhorted here to rejoice in our labors. I'll give you a little personal testimony. There was a time early in my career, and I was not liking my job. It was very boring, and it was just not setting me in the right direction. And I was wondering if it was proper for me, in God's eyes, to actually expect that I should actually enjoy my work. I really seriously doubted this. Now, it was a flawed view, obviously, of things. I had not studied Ecclesiastes yet. Um, I just had some sort of mindset that work was supposed to be painful. It's it's like, I'm a sinner, and so this is punishment. Oh, that's pretty warped, but that's what I was feeling at the time. And I kid you not, I would walk along the beaches at lunchtime near my office pondering, is it okay to enjoy what I do for a living? (laughs) Ever felt that way? Anybody? (laughs) Yeah, see some nods at the head? Yeah, (laughs) because it's just miserable. It's all vanity, right? Um, I know that sounds childish, and it was, but I thank God that time on the meditation and actually praying to him about this he did give an answer and he said yes it's okay in fact it's more than okay it's what I want for you and at that I went and made my application to change jobs so but it was a very um, real time in my life a very difficult thing but this is reassuring that this is a gift from God and that we are to enjoy it And if we don't enjoy it it's okay go look for something else right Solomon also declares in Ecclesiastes 11:9, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Now that all sounds pretty good, right? There's a caution that follows in that verse. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So judgment here is in the sense that you'll be held accountable for what you follow and what desires you apply, and whether it is for godliness or for evil, whether it is a responsible path or a reckless one. Our work and our labor is our gift. It's our God-ordained preoccupation, and I don't just mean for our employment, but in everything that we do. It's God's desire that it be enjoyable for those who seek him and may a curse to those who don't. Now, keeping this in mind about our our. Our trial or our labors being a gift, um, it's another one of those contexts for rejoicing in this world of uh, vanity. The fourth biblical context that Solomon identifies should embrace that we should embrace, so we can enjoy uh, our work in this world. Is that God is in complete control of how everything progresses. Verse 14: I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take away from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him, that which has already been and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what is past. Now, as a child, again, enjoying, I'll use that analogy once more, enjoying the blissful life of learning and inquiry and play play and pleasure, unaware of the threats in life, one is ignorant of just how much mom and dad have the bigger picture and are guiding the child along. A child is not expected to understand or expect these bigger things. And being under the shelter of a parent's wing is where the child can find the most enjoyable time in their ignorant bliss. Now, likewise, though we be adults in the world physically here, we are still yet children, as I said before, before God. And he has said, you you will be ignorant of many of these things because you cannot handle them. You cannot comprehend them. So we are to know our place before God and we are to embrace that God's work will last. We can rest in the security that everything he does is with a purpose and that we as a child simply need to obey what we are given and follow that day by day. For God seeks what is past literally means that he holds to account all that has happened. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing will divert him from his planned outcomes and he will know how to properly and justly judge when that day comes. Again, this is uh, one of those contexts in which we are to hold in mind so that we can live a happy life. The final biblical context that Solomon identifies uh, for living in this uh, world of vanity is back in verse 14 again. It's that God has so worked that men should fear him. Now, Understanding why we've been created and for what enables us to find our opportunity for our greatest joy, to stray from our God's directed purpose, chiefly, to fear and revere him is not merely less than optimal. Worse, it actually brings judgment upon us. Ecclesiastes 8.13, but it will not be well for the evil man and will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Ecclesiastes 12.13, the conclusion when all has been said is, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. In John 9.31, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Being in conformity with God's design of us and his purpose for us is what really enables us to experience our highest happiness and our greatest joy. So Solomon has given us these five contexts. He also now gives us a simple example. Let's read verses 16 through 22. Furthermore, I have seen unto the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time, for every matter, and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other Indeed, they have all the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All come from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows the breath of man ascends uh, ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? So first, he provides the observations of inequities. Um, I've already read the passage here. So I'll, uh, he, but he does have this idea of a, a chiasm in the, in the text. It's kind of, the, chi is the Greek letter X, how two thoughts cross each other. He starts with, I have seen. Then he says, I said. Then I said. And I see. And what that is doing is bringing emph- emphasis to where the things are in the middle. And in this case, it's Solomon's giving himself a talking to as he seeks to understand wisdom in this situation. Basically, he says, God will, I, I see, I have said that God will judge but both the righteous and the wicked. Nothing escapes his notice, notice. And I've said that God is testing both, allowing this to happen so that they both see that they are but beasts. So what we see here basically is an illustration that God actually delays in his own appointed time and his own purposes to let evil run its own course so that they will see that they are all but beasts. There is a a reason that God withholds instant judgment in this world. And if we read Romans 1 and 2, we'll find out very easily that it's his patience. And that's why there's evil in this world, because he desires that people come to repentance. But the other side of that coin is that of all that are his, he will lose none so he can help us endure during that time of his patience where evil continues to run rampant. Life is vanity here on the earth. It can't be fixed here on earth. And I'm going to just have to skip ahead since I've read these verses. Um, Solomon is basically saying in verse 22, man's happiness and ability to rejoice in this world is being content with being a dot on his timeline. To be a child in the the presence of our Heavenly Father, our Creator. We are to quit looking beyond our minuscule, uh, we are to quit looking at our temporal life and be looking at the author and the finisher of our faith. I'm just going to go ahead and skip ahead to um, the applications here. I think I've, we've gotten the point across that we need to have this bigger picture in mind. There's several contexts to help us understand how to live in this vain life. Uh, there is a book written by Francis Schaeffer called How Should We Then Live? An excellent documentary. It's more than a documentary. It's, a, uh, it's, a, it's more than a sermon. It's a book. He's done a film about it. And it's just an amazing insight into how we are supposed to live in the presence of our holy God in this life. We should rejoice in our daily labors while trusting in the Lord's sovereign control of life. The cycles of every event are assigned and timed for a purpose. We need to keep that in mind. Our lives should always be in the reverence to God and according to his word. We are going to be held accountable to this as well. And as we face the vanities of life on earth, we can take comfort in the Lord's purposes in our trials and pain, that they are not in vain and that lasting results are up to his plans. We can take comfort knowing that justice will ultimately be served. Only those who are in Christ will be free from judgment and can rejoice in eternity. I'm sure there's many other applications. Uh, It's just a very rich text. Some have said that this verse 11 and this chapter is the most complicated verse to understand in Ecclesiastes. It was very challenging, but I believe that Solomon has given us what makes it make sense. So let's pray. Father, we are humbled. Father, we are these fleshly beings that seek to have resolution. We seek to have the answers, which is all a God-given trait, but it's we desire more than we can handle. And this is vanity. Father, we thank you for putting us in our place, reminding us of what we are not to know, but yet encouraging us what is yet to come. Father, we pray that we would take this to heart and that as we face the challenges in life and the joys in life, that we would be content and we would really rejoice in what we do. If we're not there, Father, we pray that you would lead us. We know that you will to where that is. If it's a change of attitude or a change of heart, we ask you to convict us and comfort us. And show us the right way. And in all this we look forward to that day when all will be known. And we will have rejoicing in a way that we cannot even fathom as we are here today. Thank you for your love and your patience. Thank you for your word. And we give all this to you. And our blessing to you. The Lord be praised. Amen.